thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Welcome to this uh, Bible study on the book of Revelation. We are tonight uh, going to uh, finish the segment on the seventh trumpet. We're covering chapter 14, and uh, specifically we're going to look at Lamb and 144,000. Um, let's uh, begin by uh, recalling what we've covered last time. Uh, last uh, lecture, we've looked at the beast that came from the sea and the beast that came from the land. The dragon, as you, uh, as you will recall from our previous uh, study, was hurled down from the sky by St. Michael the Archangel. And as a result of that, the dragon lost his preeminent uh, power to accuse the nations, which he has gained since the fall. But uh, nonetheless, he still had his power of deception. And he uses this power to bring about the, le- the, uh, the beast from the sea, and that is uh, the political power of Rome. And he combines that with the beast from the land, the beast that looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon, and that is the religious authorities which are effectively uh, denying Christ. And he uses the combination of both to deceive the nations. Um, this is all part of God's plan. It is part of the unfolding of this drama that is liturgical in, it, in, in its essence. And tonight, we're going to see the other side, the side that we usually we do not see with our eyes, the side that is hidden, hidden this invisible reality of the liturgy and the powers of heaven that intervene in history on a constant basis. And tonight, this is going to be revealed to us. Why don't we start by reading chapter 14, and then walking through it. Then I looked, beginning with verse 1, Then I looked, and lo, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud, loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpers playing on their harps. And they sing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defied themselves with women, for they are chaste. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are spotless. Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of her impure passion. And another angel, the third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also shall drink the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into the cup of his anger, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of that torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. 
Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord henceforth. They may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and lo, a white cloud, and seated on a cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat upon the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat upon the cloud swung his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Then another angel came out from the altar, the angel that has power over fire, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So, in, in, uh, in, in one sense, we have here a series of images which seem to, be, seem to us, uh, at least on first read, confusing. Um, at a high level, we note that we see the Lord and 144,000. And then this vision is followed by a series of action that are undertaken by heavenly uh, beings. We will talk more about who these, these beings are. But uh, there is an angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. A second angel followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. A third angel came after them and saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark, he also shall drink the wines of God's wrath. Then we have this exhortation. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. So obviously these three angels flying in mid-heaven are saying something that requires us to consider it and then understand why we have to endure, why we have to persevere. That exhortation is followed by command to write something, which is a blessing. It's one of the seven blessings we find in the book of Revelation about those who die in, in the Lord. Next, the scene shifts over to an angel coming out of the temple and calling upon one who sits on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. So we have wheat being reaped and then wine being reaped and the wine is placed into the wine press and out of it we have blood that flows. So what is the meaning of all of this? Well, first let's put it back into the overall context of the seventh trumpet. As we were reading about the seventh trumpet, if you recall, there are seven signs that we've seen. The first one was the woman. The second is the dragon. The third is the beast from the sea. The fourth is the beast from the land. Then, here in this chapter, we see the lamb and the 144,000. The proclamation of the, of the gospel. The harvest of the earth. And then, we have the triumph of the saints. The greater parts of chapter 12 and 13 concern the persecution of believers by the forces of unbelief led by Satan and his two beastly allies. These allies deceive the multitudes into following him. In chapter 14, we have an answer. But what kind of an answer is it? How do I understand it? Well, first we need to recall that the entire drama of the book of Revelation is set, it's cast within the a liturgical context. Therefore, this is not a, a Hollywood movie where the evil ones do something and the good ones assemble their powers and then they, they run into battle and things get desperate and finally something happens and we're, uh, we're, we conquer and we're victorious. This is not a linear process where as the evil ones do something, the good ones reply something respond by doing something else and we can follow everything at the material level, at the level of history. It doesn't work that way. Liturgy has a lot to do with it. Now, watch how this is going to be played. First, 
in this chapter, we're going to see the final reward of believers and the punishment of unbelievers. Obviously, we have a prevalence of liturgical symbols that is completing this section. To begin with, the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion. Zion is key for us. Zion is one of the names for the true city of God in the Old Testament. It appears about 155 times. Rarely does the name refer to a place of sin. Jerusalem is the term reserved primarily for that reference. So, when we see the Lord standing on Mount Zion, we understand the Lord standing in a new Jerusalem, which is the church, therefore the liturgical setting. Mount Zion occurs only 19 times in the Old Testament, at least nine of which allude to a remnant being saved in connection with either God's name or God's sovereign rule. Don't get confused. I said earlier that Zion occurs 155 times. Zion as a city. Mount Zion occurs only 19 times. And it is, and in nine of these, it alludes to the remnant being saved in connection with either God's name or God's sovereign rule. Sometimes both. Here's a number of references. If you're interested, you can check those out. The second book of Kings, chapter 19, verse 31. Isaiah, chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. Chapter 10, verse 12. Chapter 20, I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 12 and 20. Chapter 37, verse 30 through 32. The prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 32. The prophet Obadiah, chapter, seven, uh, seven, chapter 17 and chapter 21. The prophet Micah, chapter 4, verse 5 through 8. And then Psalms 48, verse 2, verse 10 and 11. And, and then Psalm 74, verse 2. So what is then the reference to Mount Zion? Obviously, Mount is always an indication of God's dwelling place. It is on high. It is the highest point. It is where God dwells. Mount Zion is the holy mountain of God. Therefore, Mount Zion refers to the church in time, but also in eternity. Because a mountain is connected to the sky and connected to the land. Therefore, it is that place where heaven meets earth. Hence, when we read in the first verse, Then I looked and lo, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000. We understand that this is the throne of Jesus Christ. He is standing, he is in position of authority, like a general and his army. And therefore, it is that outlook, that position of the church that is triumphant from where we get the answer. That is key to us because it makes us understand how God deals with the world. God deals with the world through the church. Not just the church on earth, but also the church triumphant. Now, having located then where Christ is standing, we can begin to look at, um, at the meaning of this. Old Testament prophecies of Yahweh's salvation of Israel at Mount Zion are viewed as having begun fulfillment during the age of the church in the New Testament. What does that mean? It means that in the New Testament, we have multiple references, I'm going to give them to you, where the prophecies of the Old Testament with Yahweh being on Mount Zion about the salvation of Israel, those prophecies are seen as being as having begun fulfillment in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, verse 16 through 21. Chapter 13, verse 33. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. Then the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 26 through 27. And then chapter 12, verse 5. Therefore, that position is also inscribed in the Fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. It is telling us that the work that Satan and his beasts are doing is bringing about the fulfillment of those promises. And we always have to see the work of evil in the context of the work of God. It is never uh, a work that is completely separate from 
God's sovereign will. It actually fulfills God's will, whether it likes it or not. The fact that the judgment addresses those who dwell on earth indicates imminent fulfillment and not only an end-time fulfillment. Right? What does that mean? It means that when St. John is seeing this vision, this is not about a vision that indicates only end times fulfillment. He's not seeing what is going to, be ha- what is going to happen at the end of time. He's seeing something that is, that is uh, connected, that addresses the situation of the church in his time. And therefore, through the four senses of scripture, using the uh, uh, analogical sense, we know that it also addresses the fulfillment of God's will and prophecy in our own time. God, Jesus Christ, is still on Mount Zion with, his, with the 144,000 and numerous others who joined him. And that position is one of authority that he uses today as he used before. Eschatological Zion in the Old Testament was given various names. My delight is in her. That's in Isaiah 62 verse 4. City that is not forsaken. Isaiah 62 verse 12. Yahweh is there, Ezekiel 48.35, Yahweh our righteousness, Jeremiah chapter 33.16. So that is the place where God was going to dwell. It was his dwelling place. My delight is in her. Of course, that is a, a bridal relationship. It's, it's a relationship that speaks of marriage, and that is fulfilled in the church. Zion is where God has sat enthroned in Israel's temple, Since the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion, He has received all authority from His Father. We already alluded to that. Mount Zion is where God delivered Abraham, firstborn, through a sheep with with horns. So uh, it is on Mount Zion that God effected the salvation of Abraham's son. And uh, of course, from there comes all those who are sons and daughters of Abraham. Now, the 144,000, the names of Christ and of His Father are written on the foreheads of 144,000. In contrast to the name of the beast written on the foreheads of the unbelievers. As we stated earlier in the study, the name of Christ empowers the 144,000 to perform that duty. In other words, it is the work of grace in their lives that allows them to be effective. Unbelievers are not numbered. We speak only of multitude, of those who dwell on earth. But they're never numbered. Believers are. They're given a perfect number to indicate perfection. Remember, 144,000 is 12 times 12, times 10, times 10, times 10. 10 in the symbols of the, of, the, of, the, of the Bible means a lot. So 10, 10, 10 means quite a lot. And 12, of course, is the number of the tribes of Israel, and it's squared. And that means perfection. Not ultimate perfection, but perfection. So lots of perfect people is what 144,000 means, pretty much. Uh, it's a good way of looking at it. Um, as I told you before, we have to be very weary or, or rather leery from sticking to physical numbers. Was it 144,000? Was it 144,001? Uh, did St. John count all of them? How did he know there were 144,000? How long did it take him to count them? So we have to avoid that sort of attachment to the physical perfect mathematical number and rather understand the symbology behind it. And I refer you to the series we've had on the symbols of the, in the Bible, which is uh, present on our website, uh, www.corbono.com. That will help you understand how these symbols play in Scripture. Now, <clears throat> St. John says something that does not necessarily ring a bell with us. Uh, but let me read it to you again. When he speaks about those 144,000, he says about them that... Um, let me find the passage. Redeemed. Okay, no one I heard was like creatures before. No one could learn. It is they who have not defined themselves for the chase, they will follow the Lamb. Yes, in verse 4, uh, wherever it is, these who follow the Lamb, wherever he goes, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And typically, first fruits does not ring a bell for us because. Well, first fruits means, well, first fruits. What is first fruits? Is it the fruit that I pick first? What is then next fruits? Let's say you're picking apple and you pick 10 apples. Are these first fruits? 
What about the 11th? Is it the next root? How do we understand that? You see, oftentimes, oftentimes, the simplest questions to ask tend to be the hardest to answer. But we should never shy away from them. Having said that, for those of you who listen to our series on the liturgies of the temple, that would have ring a bell because of the feast of first fruits. Right? So when St. John says first fruits, he doesn't just mean first fruits. He's, refer- he, he, he's making a reference to a liturgy of ancient Israel called, called the Feast of First Fruits. We're going to look into this in a minute. But before I go there, let me tell you how first fruits appear in the Old Testament. First fruit appears about 30 times in the Old Testament, nine times in the New. So in the New, you'll find in the Romans 8 23, 11 16, 16 5, 1 Corinthians 15 20. 1 Corinthians 15.23, also 2 Thessalonians 2.13, and other places. Exodus 23.19, the choicest first fruits of your soil you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. Now I'm going to the Old Testament. That verse suggests that the first fruits, therefore, are essentially part of your tithe. You're offering that which is best, right? That is the implication behind, but it doesn't explain why first fruits is used. Why not first wheat? Why not first corn? Why first fruits? Right? You have to come back to this. Leviticus 2, 11, 12. Every cereal offering that you present to the Lord shall be unleavened, for you shall not burn any leaven or honey as an oblation to the Lord. Such you may indeed present to the Lord in the offering of first fruits, but they are not to be placed on the altar for a pleasing odor. Interestingly enough, therefore, cereal offering and unleavened, that are unleavened, would not be burned, um, would not be burned as an oblation to the Lord. You would present them, but they are not to be placed on the altar for a pleasing odor. Why? Because this is a prefiguration of the Eucharist. This is the, 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 the substantial, this is the host that is unconsecrated, and it would not be consecrated on the altar until... The Passover. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 3. Sacred to the Lord was Israel, the first fruits of his harvest. Should anyone presume to partake of them, evil will befall him, says the Lord. And Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 40 through 42. For on my holy mountain, on the mountain height of Israel, says the Lord God, there the whole house of Israel without exception shall worship me. There I will accept them and there I will claim your tributes and the first fruits of your offerings and all that you dedicate. As a pleasing order, I will accept you when I have brought you from among the nations and gathered you out of the countries over which you were scattered. And by means of you, I will manifest my holiness in the sight of the nations. Thus you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you back to the land of Israel, the land which I swore to give to your fathers. Ezekiel, of course, is important to us because he was a priest. And the prophecies of Ezekiel are set also within the context of the temple. So what this is telling us is that on his holy mountain, on Mount Zion, on the height of Israel, I will bring my first fruits. And by means of them, I will manifest my holiness of the nation. So here we have in this passage, the fulfillment of this prophecy, where God on his holy mountain has brought forth his first fruits, the 144,000 seed by his name, to manifest his holiness of the nation. Hence, the battle that we see here is not just the Lord answering the devil and his beasts. It is far bigger than that. It is the beginning of the reign of the church on earth through which God is going to bring holiness to all nations. And that is important for us to understand. Um, in Ezekiel 44, uh, 30, all the choicest first fruits of every kind and all the best of your offerings of every kind shall belong to the priests. Likewise, the best of your dough you shall give to the priest to bring a blessing down upon your house. So, you offer that which is best so that you receive blessing. And hence, every martyr is effectively like a first fruit. And the reason when when a martyr gives himself up to Christ, he brings what exactly? Blessing upon his house. Hence, we have here good solid foundation for the intercession of the saints who are the first fruits as present here they are 
the first fruits through which blessing is coming down upon all of us. That is important to note because all too often it is very easy for us to reduce the action in the, in the book of Revelation to Christ only. And that would be a mistake. This is not about just Jesus Christ. It's about the Lord as He acts through His church, through His priests, through His angels, through His martyrs, through His saints. It is family. It is Catholic family. And it's about the church. We have to keep all that in mind. Now, um, as I said a little bit earlier, I mentioned the first of first fruits. Well, the feast of first fruits occurs on the Sabbath following Passover, generally 15, the 15th of Nisan. And it began the countdown for the Feast of Weeks, which would then correspond, as far as we are concerned, with Pentecost. So you can think of the Feast of the First Fruits today in our liturgical calendar corresponding to Mercy Sunday. Now, if I told you that something was going to happen Mercy Sunday, you would pay attention because it is a very important feast. So when he says these are the first fruits, immediately in the liturgy of the Jewish temple, you're brought back to that moment after Passover. If you're a Christian, you know what happened on Passover. It was the resurrection from the dead. And a week later, new creation has taken place. Eight days later, and it is the church. So here we have, in a nutshell, the resurrection of Christ standing on Mount Zion, the new church, with the first fruits, 144,000 that are all assembled around him. It is a sign of victory, but it's also in preparation for what? Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the expansion of the church into the world. That gives us the cue of where we are in the book of Revelation, what is about to happen. It is then a moment where Christ and the martyrs of that first generation are going to be the seed through which the church is going to expand into the world. But in context, in the previous chapter, we've seen the beast, the dragon, and the two beasts, and all the might and power, and the cunning of all these things. And in chapter 14, the answer comes, Christ is risen, the martyrs are there with Him, and are preparing the expansion of the church. That's how we see it, that's how we read it, that's how we understand it. All right. Let's now look, uh, take, a, take a closer look at uh, these uh, uh, 144,000. What are they doing exactly? Now, there's something important here, which is that they are singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures. We're not told what the song is. Now, in a subsequent lecture, actually the one that follows this one, we're going to hit the, the we'll start talking about the bowls of wrath. We're going to see that the multitudes, not just 144,000, but the multitudes are singing a new song, the Song of Moses, and we're going to spend time studying this new song and understanding what it means and what the implications are. So I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but I'll, I'll say a few things about the new song. In the Old Testament, a new song is always an expression of praise for God's victory over the enemy, which sometimes includes thanksgiving for His work of creation. So it is an expression of praise for God's victory over the enemy, and it sometimes includes thanksgiving for his work of creation. So in this context, the 144,000 are singing a new song to God in thanksgiving over, <clears throat> over uh, the, uh, the, his victory over the enemy. That's very interesting. It's actually remarkable. Why? Because that victory has not happened yet. God has not triumphed over the dragon and the two beasts. Why are they singing a song of praise? We're going to see the same pattern repeating in the next chapter where the multitudes are singing a new song. Yet, God's victory has not come about. That is important for us because it makes us understand the economy of the new covenant. The way God works in the new covenant versus the way He worked in the old covenant. In the Old Covenant, Moses sang a song of praise to God after deliverance from Pharaoh, after they had crossed safely through the Red Sea and came to the other side. Then Moses sang a song of praise. The song of praise came after a material expression of God's victory. 
in the new covenant the song of praise comes before the material expression of God's victory why because it's liturgical it is liturgical it gives us an idea about the power of the liturgy when we are celebrating mass and when we give God the glory and when we sing a new song to God when we worship him in spirit and in truth we are effecting victory over his enemy the victory is still unseen the victory is not cannot be touched or seen by our by the naked eye but it is true victory hence liturgy makes history liturgy is the process is the way through which God makes history if Catholics were to understand that and if Catholic were to really focus on the liturgy as the means by which they can reach God present their petition before his throne and receive his answer then the lives of their families their own personal lives and the life of the whole world would be transformed this is why the devil wants to keep us away from the liturgy wants us to wants to keep us away from really appreciating the power of the mass this is a time where we enter a building yes but as soon as mass begins we are no longer in this building we are in that space and time which is mystical which is liturgical god is substantially present in front of us the sanctuary of stone of stone and and wood that we see fades away and is replaced by the heavenly sanctuary this is the substantial reality of the mass we are truly present in front of god's throne i mean think about it just take the time to think about what i just said and let the implication of those words sink in if you were to go see the president you would prepare for that for weeks you'd know what you're going to wear what you're going to say what you're not going to say you know what you're going to ask him you would know all that and then mass comes and mass goes and it is like a chore so realize what it means for you to be invited to mass mass is a privilege it's not a right realize what it means and act accordingly here are some references to um God's uh, to, to the fact that the new song is always an expression of praise for God's victory. Uh Psalms 33 verse 3, 40 verse 3, 96 verse 1, 98 verse 1, 144 verse 9, 149 verse 1, and then you'll find it also in Isaiah chapter 42 verse 10. Now the voices of these 144,000 are so loud that they're likened to the sound of many waters and the sound of great thunder. Now, typically the voice of God is likened to the sound of many waters and the sound of of great thunder. So here is the church that has a divine voice. It speaks with the same power as the voice of God. The voice is so loud, signifying the expansion of the church and her power. And only those who are true members of the church can learn the song. Therefore, the liturgical setting gives its full meaning to the song. Just as we say that when someone is not a Catholic, he cannot participate in the liturgical banquet of the Eucharist. We're saying also that someone who is not Catholic cannot fully sing the song. This is the song of the children of God who are in His household. These hundred forty-four thousand are chaste and virgin. Those who are chaste and virgin, the literal view can be can be. Uh, um, can be about you know virginity marriage and sexuality and one thing i want to tell you right away this is not about um this is not a criticism of marriage when saint john writes that these are uh, those who have not defiled themselves with women he does not mean by that that a man uh, having Uh, uh marital relationship with his woman is defiling himself to understand what he means we must understand the word defile this is uh, a sacred liturgical word that means to use something outside of its intended context so for instance 
if I take a, a consecrated chalice, I take it outside of the church, and I drink beer in it, or wine for that matter. Now, beer and wine are not intrinsically evil in and of themselves. Uh, of course, abuse is not a good thing. It can be mortal sin to abuse uh, uh, alcohol. But wine and, and or beer are not intrinsically evil. But putting wine or beer in a consecrated chalice is an act of defilement. Why? Because the chalice was set apart for sacred use. It was set apart to be used within the context of the liturgy. Now, the marital bed is set apart for sacred use. It is set apart for the union of men and women who are created in the image of God. When that bed is used outside of the context of marriage, we speak of defilement. Alright? So, the first literal meaning is that these are men who did not commit uh, um, the sin of harlotry or the sin of uh, uh, the, the sexual sin. That's a literal meaning. However, um, oh, before I go there, I would like to point out to you that Kared and Bokham have noted that Israelite soldiers were required to preserve ceremonial purity before battle. So before you go to battle, you, didn't, you, you did not have uh, marital intercourse. You find that in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 9 and 10, in the first book of Samuel, chapter 21, verse 5, uh, and uh, the second book of Samuel, chapter 11, verse 8 through 11. So applied here, it highlights the notion of a holy war, war fought liturgically. Again, this is a liturgical war. This is not a military war. This is the notion that those who are celebrating Mass ought to be in a state of uh, grace, they ought to understand what they're doing, who, they're, who are they in front of, and give themselves body and soul to God in the liturgy. That's how they fight the battle. In chapter 19, verse 14, we will see the Christians as an army following their military messianic leader. The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him, Christ, on white horses. So, Virginity, therefore, metaphorically, virginity is a sign of what? Purity. That's a sign of purity. Now, in, a, in, a, in this context, we understand why we can speak of the virginity of priests and of nuns. It fits perfectly here. It applies also in a, in a, in a special way to Our Lady. And also, we need to understand that uh, sexual purity was always a representation, a sign of spiritual purity, meaning love of God. So when he says these are those who have not defied themselves with women, he also intends to mean that these are those who are faithful to God. All these ideas are connoted there into that statement, and it's important for us to keep that in mind. Now, they follow Christ wherever he goes. It's really interesting that in the Synoptic Gospels, we see Christ going through the apostles. And what does he say to them? Come and follow me. And then in Matthew, we say, and immediately they left everything and followed him. That's the following that is spoken of here. It's in obedience, in love, and in humility. And they follow him everywhere he goes because they know he is the true shepherd. Ironically, we can think about Peter, St. Peter, who said, who told the Lord he would follow him even unto death. And then we know what happened. So the following of the Lord is something that requires an examination of conscience. How do I know am I following the Lord if I don't examine myself on a regular basis? How do I know I'm not following the Lord if I am not watching what I'm doing and questioning what I'm doing and trying to improve on what I'm doing in a spirit of... Uh, true love in a contrite spirit, in a spirit that shows that, that our sorrow for our sins and our lack of ability to be really, truly able to follow the Lord. I think that is a very important element in our love and in the way we show true love to God. So, what, what is key here is when he says, these are the ones who follow the Lord, recognize that there is a moral requirement for this. There is a moral requirement for this. It is something that requires us 
to live a upright life coupled with a liturgical life if we were to follow the Lord. It's not something where I just you know go in and sit by myself and talk to Jesus all day long and I'm following Him. It doesn't work that way. All right? It's a little bit more demanding than that. Very good. Now, let's move on to verse 6 and 7. What we see here is that um, we have a warning of an impending judgment. The key here is the word proclaim. If you notice in that verse, we have, I saw another angel flying in the mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on it. It's a proclamation of the gospel. Now, this is rather interesting. Why? Because who is he proclaiming this gospel to? To those who dwell on earth. Now, you should know by now that that expression, dwelling on earth, doesn't mean all those who live on earth. It means those who have made of earth their final dwelling. Those who have rejected the gospel. It is rather interesting. Here is this angel proclaiming the gospel to those who have rejected the gospel. Why would he do that? Why would he proclaim the gospel to those who have rejected the gospel? The key here is to realize that the covenant works for everyone. Not only the believers, but the unbelievers as well. And when the covenant, when the gospel is proclaimed to those who dwell on earth, that is, those who have made of earth their final dwelling. You understand that? Those who among us living on earth, but consider earth to be a pilgrimage, have not made earth our final dwelling. Our intent is to dwell where? In heaven. Currently, where do we dwell? In the church. Alright? So, those who dwell on earth are now are, are having an angel proclaim the gospel to them. But we know from previous chapters that their heart is hardened and they do not repent. So why? What is the point in proclaiming the eternal gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people of those who dwell on earth? Okay? Because this is effectively an announcement of a covenantal judgment. The angel announces the basic principle of fearing God and giving Him glory. Because judgment is at hand. Fear God and give Him glory. He's not saying to believe in all the Christian tenets. He's saying fear God and give Him glory. But what they don't, what happens? There you must realize that sometimes, you know, God puts you in a situation where you're talking to someone, you've been talking to this person for years and years and years about the faith, the church, explaining all these things to them, and you never see progress. These people are not budging. Now realize that sometimes God is going to put you in a situation to proclaim the gospel, not for the purpose of converting somebody, but for the purpose of increasing their punishment. Now this is a thought that most of us are not very comfortable with. And generally speaking, there's absolutely nothing wrong in thinking, I'm doing what I'm doing right now, planting a seed, and later, tomorrow, in a week, in a year, in years from now, this person might convert. And that's a great and wonderful way of doing it. I'm not telling you to stop doing this. I'm not telling you to try to determine whether this person is listening or not. I'm not trying to decide the fate of the person. That's not for us to do. This is precisely for Christ. But you must realize that the covenant has blessings and has curses. And both of them are there for the glory of God. And both of them are used for the glory of the church. And we, as children of God, participate fully in this covenant. So understand that nothing is ever lost. Everything gives glory to God, even when seemingly we see no results. So, <clears throat> preaching, therefore, serves to create witnesses for accountability when the unbelieving world will be judged. The one who preached can say, I preached the gospel to them and they have not listened. Right? 
Note, though, that the angelic command does not have the power to convert souls, because if this was so, angels would, would, would have saved us. It is the power of Christ flowing through the liturgy that makes the message of angels effective against the deception of the devil. Right? What do I mean by this? I mean that right now this angel is proclaiming an eternal gospel. And he's saying, fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. If this message is to touch the heart of someone, it isn't because of angelic power. It is because of the power that flows from the cross. In verse 8, we have a warning against Babylon the Great. This warning appears here in response to the second beast. The beast that came... Uh, that is, um, it looks like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. What it's, what it's saying, basically, is that the depth of iniquity is such that redemption is not possible. The statement, fallen, fallen is Babylon, derives from Isaiah chapter, 29, verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 9, where it is equivalent to the statement that the idols of Babylon are destroyed. The expression Babylon the Great occurs once in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 4 verse 30 as part of the king's self-glorification for which he is to be judged. And note also that the verb implies that Babylon is already fallen. It's a proclamation that Babylon has fell, even though, again, from a historical standpoint, Babylon is not yet fallen. That is the power of the liturgy. Okay? So, um, let me just go a little bit further and then I'm going to tell you how all this string together. In verse 11, we have a judgment against the beast. Um, there is a difference between Babylon the Great and the beast, of course. The worship of the beast is associated with Rome. Babylon is associated with Jerusalem. Beast from the earth and beast from the sea. So, the first statement, the first um, proclamation of the gospel is to those who do not believe. It is followed by what? A statement about the fall of Babylon the Great. That is addressed primarily to Jerusalem. And then it follows, another statement follows about the beast and its image and receives the mark. So you notice the gradual um, um, increase in severity and also the, the fact that all the world, everyone is included in this judgment. Those who simply do not want to convert, don't want to listen to God, they're going about their own business, and they are not uh, scheming against the church, but they really don't care. They're just doing their own things, and they're happy. Then those who, within the church, are plotting to change the church, are not happy with the ordinances and the laws of the church, and finally, those who, among the political powers of the world, are opposed to the church. All of them are addressed through those three warnings. So you can see now the structure of this chapter. It's fairly logical. First, you have Christ on Mount Zion with 144,000 who sing a song of praise. As a result of that song of praise, the liturgical song, God takes action and sends three angels, one after the other, announcing the fall and doom and judgment of all those who do not believe, of those in the church fighting the church, of the political powers against the church. You see how this works? That is how this chapter works all the way through to chapter to verse 11. Because um, we, th th there's a couple of things I want to say first before I, I, I tell you about uh, verse 11. First, note that the punishment fits the crime. In every case, God is addressing a punishment that fits exactly the crime. The drinking of God's wrath is an indication of God's judgment resulting in extreme suffering. Someone said, when, some, when it said that someone's going to drink God's wrath, it means that this person is going to go, to go through a judgment with extreme suffering. A uh, few references for your, uh, for your interest. Psalm 60, verse 3, 75, verse 8. Isaiah, chapter 51, verse 17. Uh, and 21 through 23. The book of Jeremiah, tw chapter 25, verse 15 through 18. You'll find it also in the book of Job, verse 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 20, and the book of Abadiah, chapter 16. The cup, of wrath, the cup of wrath, of course, is liturgical, because as we shall, we shall soon see, these cups are filled from the temple. At the last day, sinners will be tormented by fire and brimstone. Throughout the apocalypse, fire is figurative of God's judgment. We see it all over the place. Fire is always indication of judgment. So unbelievers are tormented by what? 
by the assurance of their hopeless plight, which will result in extreme depression. Those who have denied the Lamb will be forced to acknowledge Him as they are being punished. Everyone who stands judgment before the Lord recognizes Him as the King, as they are being punished. This recognition of the truth of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and His authority over all souls is part of their punishment. There is no deception in heaven, in hell anymore. They know the truth. That is important for us to realize. And the angelic presence indicates the participatory role of the angels in the judgment and, of course, in the liturgy. They play a very important role and they cannot be ignored. Now, it is interesting to verse 11, as I was alluding to earlier, is drawn from Isaiah chapter 39, verse 9 through 10. Isaiah 39, verse 9 through 10, which describes God's judgment of Edom. Her valleys will be turned into pitch and her land into brimstone, and her land will be as pitch burning night and day, and it will never be quenched, and her smoke will go up. It will be made desolate through, throughout her generations. For a long time, desolation will be cast over her. Why is that interesting, that it is the judgment over Edom? Because recall who Herod is. Herod is an Edomite. So you see in that statement, in that judgment, not only a judgment of the nations, but in a very pinpointed fashion, the judgment against Israel, which will be realized throughout history. Jerusalem will be destroyed, and for the longest time will lay desolate. Right? The smoke of that torment ascends forever, forever, forever and ever. Now, I don't understand how anyone can think that there can be an end to hell after reading the statement. This is as clear as it can get. When someone is condemned to hell, it's forever and ever, and ever and ever. All right? That is important for us to realize. And I would like also to note the sacrificial aspect, indicating that everything gives glory to God. Right? What do I mean by that? Well, in the text, we read the following. Um, and the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Um, earlier on, we read also that they are, um, and, and they shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment. Okay. Repeatedly, we say, we, what is a sacrifice in the Old Testament? What is it called in the Hebrew language? The ascending. Literally, a sacrifice is the ascending. What do we mean by that? Well, when a lamb is sacrificed and is burned on the altar, we say the lamb is ascending. Why? Because the smoke ascends. So it's the fact that the smoke is ascending that gives sign that God has accepted the sacrifice. That was the understanding of the, uh, of the ancient, and that's why they called the sacrifice the ascending. And here we have the smoke Notice, the smoke that the, the torment goes up forever and ever. Therefore, even the torment of those who are in hell is a participation. This whole action participates to give glory to God. And while for us it may be something difficult to understand, it is something that will be revealed to us fully in heaven when we see the beatific vision and we fully understand or understand to the better, best of our capacity the justice of God. And then we'll be able to give Him glory. Now, verses 11 and 12 is the exhortation to endure. This is the main point of verses 6 through 12. This is given to believers more so than unbelievers. Effectively, what is going on here is that from verse 1 through 11, there is a lesson for believers. It's God is saying, look how I will deal with those who do not believe. Let that be a lesson to you. And it is a call for the endurance of the saints. Endurance means what? You put up with your pain. You put up with your suffering. You endure. It isn't a call for vacation. It isn't a call for a cruise. It's a call to endure with a lot that God has given us. When we see how He deals with unbelievers, we understand that those who persecute us will come to an end. And our job is to be faithful. It's to remain faithful to the Lord through it all. How do we endure? Those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Note, note the word, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The moral aspect, theological aspect, both are important. 
So if you want to endure, you keep the commandments of the church because these are the commandments of God. The liturgy therefore makes us do both because in the liturgy, when we truly live the liturgy, we are effectively keeping the faith of Jesus Christ through the liturgy, the Eucharist, and the commandments of the church because we have to be in the state of grace. That is why the liturgy is such, an, such a critical, a crucial element of our faith. Without it, there is no faith. Without the liturgy, there could be no faith. And the declaration of blessedness constitutes a scriptural basis for the process of canonization. All right? Here is a bl- basis where the angels are declared blessed those who are. And we use the same word blessed for those who effectively were faithful to those commands according to the judgment of the church, which in that case is infallible. Those who die rest in the Lord for their deeds follow them. Hence, there, is no, there can be no faith without deeds. It is the deeds of those who rest in the Lord that actually follow them. Those who are burned with fire and brimstone has nothing follow them because there are no deeds. Their deeds were evil deeds. They could not endure. They are forgotten. So the key here then that um, what we see then, blessed are those who die in the Lord for the deeds who follow them. This may be familiar to us as Catholics, but that is a true revelation because before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the statement would have been impossible. That couldn't have said, blessed are those who die henceforth because those who die because those who died before the resurrection could not be blessed in the true sense of the world. They were parked in limbo in a special part of hell waiting for heaven to be opened. Now heaven is opened. Therefore, they can be truly blessed. Effectively, the crucifixion has changed the nature of death. Now, we see one, one like a son of man sitting on a cloud. Is that There is a whole debate over who that is. Because he seems, sitting on a cloud, it looks like he's in the same position as the son of man in Daniel chapter 7. Therefore, one thought is that this is Christ. Problem is, obviously, he's not human. So, how could he be Christ? Well, he may be uh, Christ under an angelic uh, form. I don't think we need to do any of that, um, you know, massaging of the text. All that we have to recognize is that because Christ shares his glory with all those who follow him, he allows some to effectively carry on, carry on upon themselves or have upon themselves a, a, a part of his glory. So here we have effectively an angel commissioned by the Lord to be in his place. Now, as Catholics, this is nothing surprising to us. Why? Well, because we have a fallen human being who acts as a high priest in Mass, in persona Christi. Well, if a, a human being who's fallen can do that, how much more an angel who can stand or sit in the place of Christ? That's it. And again, because of the liturgical context, we understand that both men and angels are participating in the liturgy fully for the praise of God. So, it could also be, so that's one thought. Another one is that, um, which is the one I really favor. And let me just go to the text. Verse 14, Then I looked and lo, a white cloud, and seated on a cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. The, fi- the figure that I favor here is one of the 24 elders who were sed- sitting in front of the Lord at the beginning of the book of Revelation in chapter 4. Why? Because this is a figure of a bishop. So what we have here is effectively a bishop empowered to do what Christ can do. Reason, so the reason for the figure of a bishop, of course, the liturgy. Right? Here is a liturgy. In a mass, the bishop sits enthroned. Why? Because he represents Christ. So here he is on the cloud, sitting in the Holy Spirit, enthroned. He is co-equal with the angels, and he is asked to reap the earth, not the wine of, for the winepress, the earth. What does that mean? The bishop is the first responsible for the souls of his diocese. And that's what he does. Now, here's the really interesting thing. During the Feast of the First Fruits, that I mentioned to you earlier, three, a three-man delegation from the Sanhedrin, consisting what? Of high priests, of priests of the Sanhedrin, those who belong to the 70 elders of Jerusalem. Three of them went out of, to the field of barley, a special field of barley set aside, 
to perform the first fruit ceremony and reaped on the Sabbath, which is clearly a liturgical activity, because otherwise you wouldn't be allowed to reap on the Sabbath. And what do they reap with? A sickle. There was a sacred sickle set for that special use to reap on the first fruit by priests as part of the liturgy of the first fruits. And now you understand why I am saying to you that here you have a bishop who is effectively reaping the fruits of the, his labor. The liturgy is key. The liturgy of the ancient of the temple, which illuminates our own liturgy and explains why what we have here is a participation of a bishop, of one in authority in a church, reaping for mercy. Now, the reaping of the wine for judgment happens by the angels. And the Lord himself told us in Matthew, in Mark, and in, in Mark chapter 4, verse 29, in John chapter 4, verse 35 to 38, and in Matthew 13, that the idea of reaping is associated with redemption, but he also indicated to us in the parable of the wheat and the chaff that it's not up to us to go and then separate the wheat from the chaff. It's up to the angels. So judgment, carrying forth judgment, does not happen by humans. It happens by angels. And that's why you see one figure crowned, doing the reaping for the, for the harvest, and angels carrying the grapes, the grapes of wrath. And that explains what's going on here. In the first part of the chapter, we have the 144,000 in this liturgical setting, and then we have on earth two groups, those who believe and those who don't. This bishop is dealing with those who believe, and the angels deal with those who don't. That's the answer to what the beast does and what the dragon does, Christ does not address or doesn't even tackle directly what the dragon and the beast do. He kind of ignores it. But he sets it in a liturgical part, uh, uh, place and he says, through the liturgy, through your prayers, your participation, this is going to happen. Your, the church is going to lead you to heaven and my angels will take care of my judgment, will carry my judgment into the world. And then we understand how it all plays within the context of the liturgy. Notice also that the first food are the food of the Levite only. The Levite were the priests. So effectively, the food of the Levite is there um, receiving their salary, if you will, their part in the work they do. Hence, this bishop is reaping really the fruit, the first fruits of his own work, not only just the work of Christ. In... In Isaiah chapter 5 and Lamentation chapter 1 verse 15, we see the same language used about angels coming out of the temple and from the altar to express judgment against Israel. And we should make mention of Joel chapter 3 verse 13 and speak of the judgment as two-sided, the sheep on the right and the wicked on the left. I, I, I told you that already about the wheat and the chaff. Um, interestingly enough, uh, at the end of the chapter, you notice that the, the, gra uh, the grapes of wrath are placed into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Uh, interesting language around wine and winepress because it also makes reference to the drunkard of, the, um, of um, Ephraim, which is a language found in, in, in Isaiah. Again, it's a language of judgment because drunkenness is a sign of someone losing his reason effectively acting in a, in, a, in a way that is contrary to his own interest. And what we see here, all these people who acted according to their, contrary to their own interest, to their own salvation, being poured into this great winepress, the wrath of God. Uh, by the way, if you read the book, uh, the, the Grapes of Wrath, well, that's where it comes from. That's the source of that, uh, the title of the famous book, uh, The Grapes of Wrath. Just saying this on his side. And the wine press was trodden outside the city. Which city? Zion. Right? So it's happening outside of the city, outside of the church, into the world. So all the mayhem, all the problems, all the, all the troubles we see in the world are not separated from the covenantal judgment of God, but they are intrinsically a part of it. And blood flowed from the wine press as high as a hospital for 1,600 stadia. Now that's about 200 miles. 
So the blood flowed for 200 miles, and people think of it again in a very materialistic way, and think, wow, 200 miles, man, there's a lot of people who died. No, 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 please, back up. Again, we're having an Alice in Wonderland syndrome here. You recognize that 200 miles is the length of Israel. That's all. This is an indication of where this judgment is taking place. Right? It's taking place into the land of Israel. And when you recognize that when the Romans came in, blood flowed through the entire land of Israel, you will see that historically there is a basis for it. But more significantly for us, what it means is that God plants His church in different nations. And when a church is planted, the covenant flows. And God will reward those who believe in this nation and will punish those who believe who do not believe in this nation. So blessings and punishments occur historically in the place where they have taken root. So overall, at the close of this chapter on the trumpets, what do we see? We've seen the revelation of the church and then the answer, and then the fallout of the dragon from heaven and his attempt at resisting the expansion of the church. We're going to see more of that in the next lecture, the next talk. And then, given this bleak situation, we'll look at it from the perspective of earth, the church is small, the church is fragile, the church is broken, it, it has no way to defend, uh, she has no way to defend herself, she's surrounded from uh, enemies from without, hemmed from, with enemies from within, and it looked like she's on the brink of destruction. And then we have this vision here, it reveals the entire truth. God is sovereign, God is ruling, and he sends his angels and the works of his and through his works of his bishop to regulate the life of the church. That is the foundation of our hope, and that is why this book of Revelation is relevant today as it was in the time of St. John, as it would be in ten thousand years from now, not just for the end times. And it is the it is this truth about the church, about the liturgy, about the work of God in history, about the role of our bishops and our priests should give us hope, should root us in the love of Christ, and should teach us day after day to deepen our love of the liturgy, to give glory to God for having called us as his daughters and sons into his church, into his household, and to persevere until the day he calls us to our eternal abode, to live with him and be happy forever and ever. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.